Hello. Uh, so so as, as, we, as we jump in today, um, it's, it, we're kind of find ourselves in a different place um, because we're a couple of sermons in on this series, uh, as well as uh, um, kind of continuing and building off of the places that we've been at. And so um, I just want to say, if, you, if you're coming here for the first time, this isn't probably the most, uh, you know, one of the, one of the sermons you come into and we're talking about the sex and, and, and the Bible uh, topic, that's not usually one that is a new person. You're like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what we signed up for. Um, but it does give you a taste a little bit about our values in that we uh, tend to try to be those who are not afraid to talk about topics who maybe other churches aren't. And so um, if you're new today, um, make sure that you check out some of the sermons that we've gotten um, bringing, uh, you know, to build us up to this point. And don't just jump in on three. And, and if you're kind of confused or not sure where things are, um, it kind of makes sense because we're a, a little ways into a conversation just like if you jumped into one. Um, you know, at home with some friends and you weren't sure what they'd already talked about. So let me give a couple of disclaimers, the short version. Um, oh, I did want to say first thanks to all of you who sent me purity culture memes, direct messages all throughout the week. That was fun. My favorite was the, Cam- the Kirk Cameron ones. Those are the best. Uh, but man, some, some of those uh, really sting sometimes. But uh, it's definitely a, a part of our culture that we've had to kind of talk through. Um, and that's what we talked about last week. So let me say this. Um, as, as we're trying to kind of give this a full framing and disclaimer and kind of the intent of what we're trying to do today. Um, I've given a full version of this in the last couple of weeks, so this is definitely the the quick one. But if you're in the room, I am making a couple of assumptions today that um, you or an adult uh, present with you, you're either an adult yourself or someone with you has approved of you being here, and second, that you are um, in a place emotionally to handle a topic like this. And and so here's, here's part of that is like, it's okay if you're not, but that's just the assumption I'm going to speak from, so you know that I'm kind of, kind of coming in with that in place already. Um, and then second, that the congregation keeps an overall tone of safety and empathy. Now, I don't, I don't actually think that this is as necessary in other congregations I've been a part of, um, you know, because I do think we just have this about this kind of idea and this temperament about us, but a tone of safety and empathy. And as I say some things, you may, as I mention something, you might feel to yourself that this is a foreign idea, so foreign that it seems weird, and, and that might be somebody else's lived reality, something they either struggle with or, or an experience that they've had. And so the idea is not to kind of ostracize anyone for any of the experiences that they've had, as well as, as I am speaking, if I say something that you disagree with, my intention is not to point anyone out or to make anyone um, feel ostracized themselves. You're welcome here in our church, you're welcome in this conversation, and we may not disagree, and that's okay, all right? But you are welcome here. Um, finally, oh, I already mentioned that we're building on a foundation set over the last couple of weeks. Um, and let me give just a quick, tiny summary. Um, so last week, we ended with this. We, we've gone through a couple of switchbacks, mostly looking at ourselves as the church. And in the past couple of years, the way the church has either ignored or framed this conversation about sexuality in ways that we think that maybe were harmful and needed repenting from. At least some correction, right? But to all realize that we need the the Bible to speak into this. That even if you grew up in the church, if you grew up out of the church, there is a way in which we need to step to the plate asking God to tell us what we're supposed to do in this conversation. And so we we discovered this last week um, after we asked this question, okay, what does the Bible tell us about sex with a level of awareness, with a level of understanding that maybe we've gotten some things wrong in the past. And we discovered that there's four biblical purposes for the creation of sex and why God has given it to us. 
And the idea is that if we know about this gift, if we know the direction in which we are supposed to be heading, it helps us to understand the parameters for sexuality and how to weigh the different values that we're bringing to the table, right? And a lot of those values are, are built in different areas. Those four purposes were this. Sex was meant to be an illustration. Sex was meant to be for procreation. Sex is meant for love. And sex is meant for pleasure. Now, we pulled these all from Genesis before humanity rebelled, right? Before Genesis 3. So today I want to continue showing you how the story of sexuality builds itself and depicts this beautiful creation that the creator makes and he upholds these purposes, but but they also create this byproduct of standards that we have to pay attention to. And so as we're meant to see those things, we're also meant to embrace them, to flourish within that context and to enjoy it. All right, a little bit of framing. Here we go. Um, Okay, God has always, listen, God has always had a standard for his people, distinguishing them from amongst the nations as separate and different from everyone else. God said, I have a special relationship with you, Israel, my people, that now extends to us, that is meant to say you are, the Bible uses the term holy. We say set apart or different or unique. The Bible uses the term holy. And in the midst of that, this idea is I have a covenant relationship with you, right? And so what we talked about in, 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 in this idea, it fits very directly. A few, uh, about a year ago, a few months ago, we walked through a long-term series called The Gospel Story. Um, and, and this idea fits very comfortably in the context of what we established there, which is basically that the gospel is that all of creation was created good, right? Before the, 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 the rebellion takes place, it was all created and created good. And often the gospel starts with you're a sinner in need of grace. It doesn't start there. It starts with God made everything good. The second part is that humans rebelled, but he loved us so much that he wanted to fix that relationship that was broken, Right? Then we have this promise or covenant. That's the introduction of this relationship and the parameters that God sets for it. The promise is that you agree to some things. I agree to some things for you. Have no other gods before me. Keep covenant fidelity with me. But what God knew that we didn't is that we were incapable of keeping up our end of that agreement. And so instead of giving up on us, he sends Jesus to show us how to live and to die for our sins so that we could still be brought back into relationship with him. Then he empowered us to be a movement, a kingdom force that ultimately goes to the end of reconciling all things. Everything gets made new in the book of Revelation. He renews and we are meant to become a movement of that renewal process, shouting the good news to everyone, everywhere we go. All right? Now the good, a good theology of sexuality must find itself inside of that story and include a strong ability for application in the same way that the gospel presents its redemption story. Let me say that again. A good theology of sexuality must find itself in this story and include an application of the same gospel principles that we read in the redemption story. So that like work, like money, like power, things that are not inherently evil but can be taken in ways that are not the way they were intended. It can become distortions of what they were meant to be as a result of the rebellion that we read about in chapter 3 of Genesis leads to misuse and confusion and abuse and addiction and indulgence. I've quoted to you from a guy by the name of Hollinger. Uh, It's a book called The Meaning of Sex. and I'm going to quote from this book multiple times today. Uh, Here's the first one. 
on this topic, he says, likewise, when we come to the gift of sex, we recognize that it has potential for so much goodness, but in its fallen state, so much abuse. It is in light of this reality that we must probe the ends of our purposes of the gift of physical intimacy. Understanding these ends or purposes enables us to capture God's intentions from creation. But such understanding is also essential to guard against the abuses and unethical practices that tempt us in, the fallen, in a fallen sex-crazed world. I've read that quote once, but it applies again here. And so the purposes, the four purposes that we outline, give us a directional kind of, this is the way in which you're supposed to build. Now, all the details aren't given you. That, that's where the frameworks come into mind. And I'm not handing you another framework. I'm going to hand you, you, you directional ideas and, and the materials to build on your own. But that's, that's not my job. That's your job. Right? And so what I want to do today is kind of show you that these purposes give us a direction to build, but it also gives us a safeguard. It protects us from taking it in a way that causes abuses, both of which we have to admit we are severely capable of doing. Building in the wrong direction and creating abuses out of the good gifts that God has given us. Amen. Are we there? Yeah. Okay. The hope in the midst of our fallen world and not yet redeemed state that we live in is that Jesus has both held a standard for our relationship his entire existence with us. I should rather I should say our entire existence with him. But he has also mixed it with a level of extravagant grace that it is often so difficult for us to even understand, to grasp. Grace gets abused, but also the application of holding people to standards gets abused. And it's so difficult to do that it's hard for us to understand. And even when we see what Jesus does with it, it's controversial. So controversial. In fact, I believe that's why we even are having this conversation. We're still trying to figure out how to deal with those two things. And so I want to give you an example in my life where these two things were out of balance. Um, and, and then we'll jump into kind of the main body. Uh, so after I was a Christian, uh, I was in a relationship uh, with a young woman. And we weren't sleeping together, but other things were happening, right? And we went through that cycle of this isn't going to happen again, right? But then it did. And let's, let's create some rules and some things that we have to live by. We're not going to be out that late. or We're not going to go to these places or put ourselves into these situations. But eventually that promise, this won't happen again, God, got broken. And I wanted to stop, but in our own power, and she did too, but, it, but in our own power, we were unable to do so. And it took me down this incredibly dark path. I would not say that I was suicidal, but it got me to a place where I started praying that God would just kill me before it happened again. Like, think of the state of mind. I would stay up at night saying, God, I, I, I don't want to necessarily die, but I don't want to sin against you. I am so tired of my own ability to live up to the standard that you have given me, and I am so sick of feeling the weight of that shame and the guilt on the other side of that. Could you just not make me wake up tomorrow? Think of how dark that place is. And what happened is that I had this understanding of God's standard. I knew what I was doing was not okay, but I didn't have a concept of allowing God's grace to have a part of that conversation in my mind, and, God, and, and the enemy used it to try to lead me into death. It's just what James says, right? He says this, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when, it full, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, I had felt that on a new level when I asked and prayed that God would just give me death because of my own sin. 
And what I didn't have in my, in my repertoire of, of experience with God was the ability to grasp the grace of God over my life in a way that allowed me to, 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 to be able to live in this relationship, but also to lead me out of sin. We've heard this phrase, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so I want us to see that, I want us to hear that, to feel that if we don't understand the weight of it all, how will we understand the fullness of God's holiness and what God has relieved us from? But on the other hand, on the flip side, if we don't know the power of the grace of Jesus and what he offers us, it can overpower our temptations. The, the, the grace that has the power to overcome our temptations and lead us into righteousness. Both things have to be held properly. And I say this because as I describe the purposes of God that we're going to talk about today, that will eventually have some obvious standards that we are supposed to be held to, which should then, if it's done right, cause us to start analyzing our lives and allowing the scriptures to read us. But that could produce a weight of guilt that you are not, nor were you ever built to bear the burden of. And so as you feel this, it should have some sense of, man, I don't have the ability to live up to the things that we're describing today. And God said, I knew you didn't. Okay, and we're going to come back to this, but what I want you to say is anytime we deal with stuff that hit at the heart like sexuality, this tension of navigating grace and truth is incredibly difficult, and we are going to have to do it as we go and navigate the next few sermons that we're walking into. With this idea in mind, I want to read to you from our statement of faith. On its own, I want to admit to you that it focuses mostly on the truth side, and I want to shore up the grace side towards the end, so stick with me through it. This is our statement on marriage. It says, we recognize that all persons are made in the image of God and are to reflect that image in the community of believers, in home, and in society. We believe in the family, celibate singleness, and faithful heterosexual marriage as the pattern God designed us for. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is the, the, the cited source for that. And so we pull this mostly from Genesis, which is also where I introduced to you that there are these four biblical principles last week. And once again, those principles were illustration, procreation, love, and pleasure. That provides an anchor for us as we read the rest of this story and watch how it unfolds in the rest of the scripture. These four things will play out over and over again, kind of like this echo that takes place, the story of sexuality. I'm going to detail out all four of those and we're going to come back to how we apply grace and truth together. The first one is illustration. We have this graphic. Boom. Illustration. This is one of the most powerful parts of our discussion. You'll actually see most of my time will be spent here and then a little bit less each time into the last one because I think actually the first two help inform the last two. Does that make sense? And so this first part is going to be weighted and then the last two will kind of come in and they'll be much quicker. This is the most powerful part, most powerful part I think. The definition that I want to give you for illustration is that Scripture establishes that marriage, including the consummation of it through sex, is a living, breathing example or illustration of the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. And so sexuality becomes this overarching metaphor that plays out in the scripture. And I'm going to give you some plotting points. I can't can't hit them all because it's so saturated. But I'm going to give you a few of the highlights that I thought were most important in this. And it's this metaphor that, that God has a relationship that is unique with his people, the church. And it takes place in the context of a covenant relationship or marriage, right? We call that marriage now, throughout the scripture. The problem is that we don't have a strong understanding of what a covenant relationship looks like. Right? 
We have a very small view of that. And even as we teach about it in the Scripture, it's kind of something we say, we know it's there, but we don't really quite know. We just read covenant inside of the Scripture, but, but without really some understanding of you know, hyperlinking that to what it means and how it's anchored in the Scripture. Much of this is established in Genesis 1 and 2, but it plays out even further. And here's um, the plotting points I'll give you. I want you to think of Mount Sinai first. Mount Sinai is the place that all of God's people are gathered on the other side of the, 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 the Egyptian um, captivity, and then, and then walking through the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, they get delivered, and then they get gathered at Sinai. Now, this metaphor plays out even further than I am able to explain to you today, but catch this. As many of you know, weddings are planned meticulously, orchestrated, designed with all kinds of significant symbols and meanings. They differ from culture to culture, but every culture has these symbols and meanings. But the core of most weddings is the vows, the promises that are made to one another. And this is rooted to ancient times, right? And it's rooted into covenant understandings of our relationship. They are stipulations by which we are agreeing to live with one another. And similar to a wedding, the Hebrew people come out of Egypt. They were collected at Mount Sinai and given how many commandments? Not a trick question. How many commandments? Ten. Well, actually, there was a first couple ten, and then he gets mad and drops them. You remember all that drama that takes place? And then he gets another ten, but I'm pretty sure it's the same thing written on them. With ten commandments, God gives his bride, the church, ten vows by which he wants them to live by. This is the vow time of the wedding. And there are ten things, and they say things. Listen, because listen, this is what Jeremiah even affirms it later. It says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. He's talking about the desert wanderings. Now keep in mind, we have an adjustment in our heads. There's betrothal, right, before the actual marriage. And that's going to play out very similarly here. The commandments tell us using marriage vow language, the parameters of the relationship that God, that we are supposed to have with our relationship with God and our relationship with others. So there will be faithfulness in this relationship that is akin to sexual fidelity. It's a high priority. Likewise, worship and engagement with other gods is forbidden because embracing their ways of life is considered over and over by the prophets as adultery or harlotry, prostitution. The Shema later on, which is kind of the epitome or the hinge point of most of what the Jewish um, faith and, and, and our inheritance from them revolves around, is both a summary and a reaffirmation of the vows that were recited, that were agreed to on Mount Sinai. Let me read it to you. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is meant to be a summary and a reaffirmation of the vows that we make to God through the Ten Commandments. Jesus himself quotes the Shema later and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he brings this thing together, right? So there is a way in which we are supposed to interact with God that displays a kind of unique fidelity that we have with him, but also like we love people who are not in this relationship. We are supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but you are also not supposed to embrace their ways of life. There is something distinct about who you are 
as my bride. Jesus then pulls from Genesis in a response to the Pharisees about divorce, reiterating the language of oneness and sexual union. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Paul says he calls husbands and wives to submit to each other and lays out the meaning of self-sacrificial love as Christ loves. He quotes the Genesis paradigm saying, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is all language that is meant to echo this marriage, including the consummation of that marriage over and over. Paul uses the Genesis paradigm to argue against sexual immorality in his first epistle to the Corinthian church. Sex outside of marriage, of the marriage covenant, is rejected because the human body, which for a believer is part of Christ's body, is not intended to be united to another's body without the covenant. He then asks, do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that the two will become one flesh. So what I'm trying to do is to kind of exercise our muscle for what that means to share in that and the implications based on the illustration that God has given us for these things. I want to give you one more. Paul suggests that a kind of marriage actually takes place in this physical union with a prostitute because sexual intercourse is a one flesh act that consummates a marriage. Thus, the physical joining, which in God's design is to bring the two whole beings together as one, is a consummating kind of act without consummating intent. It is a joining of bodies when God intends a joining of whole persons. That also comes from Hollinger. Building this metaphor out one more step, it it comes to its close in Revelation. Verse 19, 6 through 8 says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah for our God, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. All right, so we have this metaphor that the scriptures depict in a way in which we understand that that, that works with God and his bride, but then we are, are meant to image this in any kind of marriage covenant, including sexuality within that, in the same likeness, that we proclaim that illustration through the way we interact with one another. Sex at its most basic level is reserved for the context of marriage, all right? That's assumed inside of there. And inside of that covenant conveys a level of permanence, a level of faithfulness, a level of intimacy that is like oneness. Every marriage is meant to be a walking, talking metaphor of this celestial marriage between Christ and the bride on display. Okay, so what I want to, I want to ask this question. I don't know how deeply this is sown into us. Stop and ask yourself, is this new to me? Just stop right now and ask yourself, is this new? Now, second, if it's not new, was it brought into your conversation before you said, I want to get married with someone? Did someone come alongside you and in discipleship through the church say, hey, before you get married, I want you to know that what you're engaging in is meant to be this? Because that was completely foreign to me until I came across it 
and it changed everything about the way I viewed what I was getting involved in. I think it's there. I don't think it's complete. It's like a side note, though. But, but as you make commitments, and for those of you who are single and maybe wanting to get married, have you considered what it means to love someone in the same way that Christ and the bride love each other? Is this put into our metaphor for marriage to the extent that we would say that is a goal of what I am about to agree to? And the implication is that you could walk into a door and the way a husband and wife treat each other causes somebody to say, that's how Christ loves the church. I want to know this Christ. Do you see how that makes sense? The gospel can be proclaimed because of us doing this well, but it can also be hurt by us not doing it well. The first purpose is illustration. The second one is procreation, a.k.a. making babies. Okay, quoting again from Hollinger, and this will be the more sophisticated version. Sexual intercourse is the means by which human life on earth continues and the means by which every human life begins. God's design is that humans enter the world through the most intimate, loving relationship on earth, the one flesh covenant relationship of marriage. As we examine God's designs, however, we see that sex is inherently procreative. Now, of course, again, it's derived from Genesis as the first what I'll call stewardship responsibility that is given to the man and the wife. Or the, the, I'll say the man and the woman. In chapter 1, verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number or multiply. It's Genesis 1, 28. So after the rebellion takes place, later on in Genesis 3, we see that all of creation, human life, including procreation in Genesis 3, 16, shifts in a negative way. Right? Everything is affected, but it names things that take place in procreation as being specifically affected. Adam and Eve conceive and give birth, right? And then Genesis 4, 1 through 2 says, Adam made love to his wife. Some translations say knew his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Scripture continues to depict children as both a gift and a blessing from the Lord. Probably the most famous here is Psalm 127 that says this, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring, a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. Now, if you've spent any time with my kids... Arrows is a good description because they can destroy some things, right? Now, that's not always true, but you see in this context what they meant is when they have to go contend with somebody about a disagreement, they go to the public courts and they bring their family with them. And it truly is a like, I got 18 kids behind me, you got 12, I'm probably going to win this battle. I mean, it, it is that simple, hopefully more civil than it gets to, but some would come down to that. And so the idea in this moment is to consider them in this placement part of your oikos and you're building that out so that it's strong. And God says this is a, a blessing and an honor. I want you to see that, that when you catch the purpose of procreation and discipleship and filling the earth with lots of tiny little followers of Christ, that the idea is meant to embody discipleship. Not just to have kids, but to have children that you are then building up in the ways of God and then sending them out to be pro proclaimers and livers of the gospel themselves. It is a form of discipleship. 
All right? And so this kind of idea is that the kingdom of God would move from generation to generation, hopefully further than our generation took it into the next and further than their generation took it into the next generation. And so we have this idea of a blessing, the idea of discipleship is as the nations are blessed through us and come to know God and Yahweh through us, it will be done through generations of discipleship. In the New Testament, against cultural norms, we see that Jesus upholds children in a really high regard, much more so than anyone else did in that time. Matthew 18, he even uses them as an example of faith, that if you don't have faith like one of these children. Now, in that moment, he was, uh, he was uh, working in a way that would have said these are the most marginalized people. They don't have a vote. They don't have a say. They aren't considered in any kind of decision-making. And so he elevates the people in the lowest position, the children in this moment. In John 16, Jesus says that the joy of a child being born overwhelms the sorrow of pain experienced during labor and childbirth. I cannot speak to that personally because I have not endured pain in childbirth. I'll let you ladies... Uh, comment on that on your own. There's some negotiations that have to take place in this verse, though. And here should be like the common questions that come up. Does every sexual encounter need to be for the purpose of procreation? And some variations of Christian ethics would say yes to that. Some would say I don't, I don't, I, I, that, that the only reason, they would elevate this as the only reason for sex is procreation and that any sexual um, act should end in that result. I don't think that's true and this is why. This purpose comes into negotiation with other purposes like pleasure and love and I think that by its design and biology it gives us this sense that it's not just for procreation but I also think it can't be without it. And so you ask these questions all the time. We've been asked these questions. How did you decide to have four? It wasn't as complicated as some of you all might think. Okay? I generally thought we were going to have about four. We had the, third, the fourth one a little earlier than we were planning. That was our family planning. But people come to me all the time. I, I don't know the fullness. You have to negotiate things, right? Like, what does your stage of life look like? What is the capacity of your family? How much are you in control with? And now we have more access to birth control. And the question is, how much control should you have? And, and my, my answer for this is that often I think what we do is we bring in idols of finances that come into play and a certain type of quality of life that we want to keep for our children. I think we have to ask the question, especially men, who bears the burden of the responsibility of raising children in a household? We don't have an oikos system to help us out anymore. We're all so individualistic that everything has to be contained within a tiny family unit. And I wanted to point out, this is interesting, because I remember this moment where in my context, in an under-resourced context like a trailer park, I remember my mom saying she had to run to the store. She forgot something. There wasn't an ask. There wasn't a negotiation or how much can I pay you. There was a, hey, can you watch my kids? I got to go get something from the store. There, and, and it was an absolute, yeah, go do it. That was our neighbor. And so there's this built-in understanding, I think, when you see people who live in apartment complex, trailer parks, things like this, who actually have this sense of oikos that we've lost. But that affects how we make decisions very directly of do we have more children or not, right? And so I want to say, I, I'm not here to point out or make any decisions. Oh, I wanted to give you this one. This is a unique thing, the Jewish interpretation. So, so the question at hand is, how do we fulfill the mandate? And what is the meaning of, of the fullness of be fruitful and multiply? And the Jewish people actually have an answer that they work out in this. They believe they have fulfilled this when they have procreated one male and one female. 
They have contributed another procreating generation into the next. All right? So here's my, here's my point in this. I don't know what you've thought about. My guess is most of us in our culture had not thought about it. Right? Had we thought through, am I having children off of this idea of being fruitful and multiply? Does that inform where I'm going with that? Does that inform when and how I stop? Or is something else informing the when and how I stop from our culture? All right? I don't know where the answer is for you. I'm just saying most of us don't bring this into the discussion, right? And so I want to leave that as that, um, allowing you to make some conclusions on your own in terms of what you do with that. But, But my point overall, if we were to back up, is just to say that sexuality is meant to be a procreative act. Um, And so let me read this once more from Hollinger as a summary. We cannot develop the Christian meaning of sex by setting aside this dimension. Children are a fruit of sexual love, though couples engaging in sex need not intend to have children through a given act. They must always be open to that possibility. For sex is by nature procreative, and it is a part of its essential meaning. Procreation is not the only purpose of sex, but is an indispensable part. Every sexual act is procreative in that it carries, quote, the potential of offspring and points beyond itself as a private personal act to the generative dimensions, inherent and morally legitimate sexual intimacy. That gets real wordy at the end. He's just calling it legitimate sex. What many perceive to be, quote, my business is actually a communal business, and that's the way that God designed it, all right? There's a whole sermon somewhere in there that I don't have time for today, uh, but, but if that stirs any conversations and you want to know more, please come and talk to me. I want to move on to the third purpose, love and intimacy, and I've used those interchangeably, um, but the word love is, is kind of one of these conversations that we always get into. It says we, ha- we have a million songs, poems, sonnets, if you want to go old school Shakespeare on this. We have all kinds of ways of defining love. We have interpretations throughout all of our cultures that give some variation of trying to define love. And the basic question is like, what is love? Is it an emotion? Is it just intense attraction? Is it a kind of bond? Is it love that it, uh, can love be its own definition, right? That's a question we're asking today. Is it the outward social interaction expressed from inner biophysiological mixtures of hormones, chemicals, and other things in your body? I mean, if we want to go science on it, that, that could get there. And since this series is called The Bible and Sex, I'll give some examples specifically from the scripture. I want to contrast it with one dominant idea. I mentioned a few weeks that there is multiple ways of translating, um, uh, multiple words that translate as love in our current scriptures inside of the English. I want to give you the definitions of those three. The first is raya. Say raya with me. One, two, three. Raya. I didn't hear everyone. One, two, three. There it is. This word means deep friendship and companionship, you could also call it my darling, someone who you care for, you have adoration for. Ahava, say it with me, one, two, three, ahava, focuses on the strength of a relationship, a deep affection, commitment, and making a decision to be with someone. Each party in this definition is both the receiver and the giver, and the connection only grows in this process or sorry, and the connection grows in this process day in and day out as you continually give one, uh, uh, as each one gives of themselves to the other. So it's intended to be self-sustaining just by its own name. 
And so focusing on the strength, relationship, commitment, and making a decision. The last one is dode. Say dode with me. One, two, three. Dode. This one means to carouse, to rock, and to fondle. I think you get the point. This is most effectively pointed out in Song of Solomon. In the Bible, sex as an expression of love is most visible in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. It is a beautiful book of lyrical poetry that has sometimes been an embarrassment to Jews and Christians because of the way it abounds in in sensuality. In fact, Jewish boys were not allowed to read it until they were 13 years old or older because it was considered so provocative. Now, a few things I want you to see is that the operational relationship of what the Bible means by love can't be captured in our English word because it's one word. But all three of these ideas and this kind of operational interaction is what God means by it. And so it comes into this definition that's like, if we inform Dode with Ahava, with Raya, then that's what this word love means in the English. And all of that gets lost when we just translate it into one word. And it says nothing in our, intera- in our translation today of the fact that it inf- is informed and perfectly fits with a definition that can only be achieved as, as it fits into a definition of covenant. Happiness is a byproduct to biblical love, but it is not defined by it. Did you hear happiness once in any of those definitions? And so while if you do these things well, happiness should happen, it should not be led by whether one is happy or not happy, rather by the quality of what one is able to give away and sacrifice to the other. Can that be abused? Yes. And I don't, I'm not advocating for abuse, but it, but it definitely doesn't need to be led by a conversation in happiness. So this is the classic Jewish understanding, but what I want to do is to, to contrast that real briefly um, with the Western Greco-Roman idea of romantic love, which is this. Love is nothing more than a random, overwhelming, uncontrollable, sensual force. The image of love is Cupid with, one, with a, 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 a quiver of arrows who shoots somebody that then becomes overcome with passion. Those who believe this idea make some of the following statements. We don't choose who we fall in love with. Have you heard that before? This thing is bigger than both of us. (laughs) The heart wants what it wants. The scriptures tell us that the heart is wicked and we can't trust it. And so this Greco-Roman version sounds good. It, it, it appeals to romantic sensibilities and it's beautiful, but it indulges an immature concept of love that lacks the fullness of what God intended for it. And so I wanna, I wanna, what I want us to see is that any version of love that is led by or emotion only lacks a depth that God had always intended for it. God's love was meant to be lasting and stable. It's something that stays. It's something that will serve as a foundation that we can build covenant on. And our current culture has completely hollowed out every bit of that depth. And so if the purpose, the question here is, what does this have to do with sex? Well, God embeds in his creation story the idea that sex is included inside of a covenant that is specifically defined by this kind of love. It is only in the context of raya, ahava, and dod that sexuality can have its fullness. The one flesh union is meant to be a physical expression of love that we describe just now through those three definitions of love 
and it's the highest form of intimacy to express all three of those kinds of love. And if you base your definition on love on the Greco-Roman myth, then a one-night stand or a Twitter app makes a lot of, or a Tinder app makes a lot of sense, right? If it's something that comes and goes, if the Greco-Roman world allows, uh, is allowed to define love for us, then it actually justifies a lot of abuses that we see today. But that's not what God wanted. The intimacy involved in this rhythm of reaffirmation and recommitment through oneness, through sexuality, is meant to represent the closeness, biophysiological, soul, and spirit of these three things. Um, This is what we're going to do because I don't have time to hit this last one, but this is how I wanted to end today. I want to read to you, because, because this, is, this is, again, this is what I want us to see, is if you've gotten to this point where you're like, yeah, I get that that's the standard, but like, who in here can raise their hand and say, I did that? I came out of this clean. I lived by all the standards. I, I walked through this life without lusting. I walked through this life without having sex before marriage. I walked through this life. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm perfect. What, which person in this room gets to raise their hand and say, I am 100% doing this by the way God has said we should do it? My obvious answer is no one. And I want to read to you how Jesus handles those situations. John 8, 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote again on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, who, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And let these words sink in. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus' application of holding us to a standard and Pouring grace upon grace is so unique. I said it was controversial, and it still is today. I think we, we uniquely see this. Like, I don't condemn you, but sin no more, right? Sin no more, but I'm not condemning you right now. That there is grace, but like, you can't keep doing what you're doing, but also don't let that destroy you. There is grace enough sufficient for you. And I felt this personally. And so, and so when, when, when my wife and I first started getting together, we actually did mess up and sleep together before we were married. And what happened is after a few times of trying to do the game of like, we're not going to be here and not do that thing, like we're going to stay here, I'm not going to be out so late, I eventually woke up one morning and realized if I keep doing this, it will lead me into a dark place again, and I went to a trusted pastor friend of mine. Now, now keep in mind, I'm a pastor on staff at a church. I'm pretty much under the impression that my entire career is done. 
and I go to this friend and I say, I have, to, I have to confess something to you. Can I come to you tonight and stay out where you sit out on your porch and we're going to talk? And so my friend Randy, who had discipled me for years, who was a mentor to me and still is even to this day to some extent, he told me all of the ways in which we're going to kind of, we're going to, if you're, if you're going to marry her, you're going to let us do your premarital counseling. And we're going to put some pretty heavy parameters on how you proceed together in your relationship. Do you agree to these things? Yeah, man, but they haven't worried. Well, you haven't had me knocking on your door and texting you all the time. And then he says, as we go through this process, he starts telling me, look, man, I want to know how you're feeling right now. And so I said this. I told him about how I had happened to be in a situation where I was telling, just praying, God, would you just kill me? And so as we kind of go through this process, there's crying, there's all kinds of praying over me, and this situation, as we remember that I'll never forget, I get up to leave, and I'm like, thanks, man. I, I can't tell you how big of a deal it was that you were a person who was safe enough in my life to talk to. And then on the door, he said, hey, one more thing I want you to hear me say is tomorrow is a Saturday. He said, tomorrow you're going to step on that stage, and the enemy is going to tell you you don't deserve to stand on this stage. And what I want you to do is to stand and lead worship in front of your congregation with more authority than you have ever had before in your life. I want you to go into your youth ministry this week and I want you to teach with more authority than you have ever had in your life because the enemy is going to lie to you and try to pour shame and guilt over you. And I want you to know that all of it is a lie. We are going to fix this. You don't just get to keep sinning. But the enemy doesn't get to have a part in this conversation. And then he prayed over me a prayer that, I mean, eventually just collapsed. I was on the ground crying. But I'm telling you this because there was a level of grace that he showed in that moment that was unexpected. Like I was thinking it was all over. Then he comes in and tells me to have more authority moving forward. And this wave of grace washes away all of the embarrassment and the sin and all the things and then made a way for me to say, let's deal with this though. Go and sin no more, but the condemnation does not rest on you today. This is how I want us to be sent and I'm gonna pray for us right now and end. I don't know which one of those things you tend to lean towards, the grace or the true side of this. But our hope as a church is to be both of these things, and I want you to know that I have felt the depth of both my sin to the point of feeling that I needed to be dead, and the depth of God's grace to the point that I feel like I know that there's a point where we have to just wash everything away like a tidal wave through it. I hope that that gets conveyed through this series as we talk about truth. I hope that we are also a safe place for you to come to and say, hey, I need your help with something. And know that it will be met with an extravagant amount of grace, maybe controversial, but a powerful leveling of saying, but we're not letting go of truth. Let's deal with this. Let's talk about this. I want to pray for that today. Would you all pray with me? Yes, Lord. So I thank you for the way in which you operate, that there is a standard and that you don't relinquish that. It keeps your your, your, your uh, holiness intact. It keeps our covenant relationship intact. It allows us to live into an illustration that is so much bigger than maybe some of us had understood, Lord. But it also leads us to understand, God, that we can't live up to our end of the bargain.
And so, Lord, I pray today that if there is somebody who is sitting under a weight of guilt or shame, that they would know the grace of you, Jesus Christ, today. And on the other side of that coin, if there is those in us who are tempted to just throw out the standard of God, that you would heighten the level of importance there, God, and that we would live in this dance of truth and grace that allows us to be the kind of kingdom people that you have made a way for us to be. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that it is everlasting and never-ending. God, thank you so much for your law and the vows you made to us because it is a gift to us. And may we accept all that you have for us as we navigate every part of these things, Lord. We ask for this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.